Public Works Steampunk presents Jane Eyre. Written by Charlotte Bronte, with Steampunk Editions by R.A. Harding. Read by Danita Feldman. Chapter 22, in which Jane returns home. Mr. Rochester had given me but one week's leave of absence, yet a month elapsed before I quitted Gateshead. I wished to leave immediately after the funeral, but Georgiana entreated me to stay till she could get off to London, whither she was now at last invited by her uncle, Mr. Gibson, who had come down to direct his sister's cremation and settle the family affairs. Georgiana said she dreaded being left alone with Eliza. From her she got neither sympathy in her dejection, support in her fears, nor aid in her preparations. So I bore with her feeble-minded wailings and selfish lamentations as well as I could, and did my best in sewing for her and packing her dresses. It is true that while I worked, she would idle. And I thought to myself, if you and I were destined to live always together, cousin, we would commence matters on a different footing. I should not settle tamely down into being the forbearing party. I should assign you your share of labour and compel you to accomplish it, or else it should be left undone. I should insist also on your keeping some of those drawling, half-insincere complaints hushed in your own breast. It is only because our connection happens to be very transitory and comes at a peculiarly mournful season that I consent thus to render it so patient and compliant on my part. At last I saw Georgiana off, but now it was Eliza's turn to request me to stay another week. Her plans required all her time and attention, she said. She was about to depart for some unknown trip, and all day long she stayed in her own room, her door bolted within, filling trunks, emptying drawers, burning papers, and holding no communication with anyone. She wished me to look after the house, to see callers and answer notes of condolence. Upon her mother's death, Eliza quickly put the affairs of selling the house and estates in the hands of agents, who began selling portions of the mechanical staff, excusing the human staff, and removing some of the larger pieces of furniture. When all was set at rights, they had the manor rested on pylons and the engine cycled down. I sat at the top of the stairs and felt the familiar rumble beneath my feet fade to a hum, a gentle purr, and then, with two short coughs and a shudder, settled to stillness. There was no one but myself to mark the silence, no one to mourn the final sigh of a family home discarded and the final children dispersed as seeds upon the eastern breeze. Eliza did not emerge from her room for another two days. One morning she told me I was at liberty. And, she added, I am obliged to you for your valuable services and discreet conduct. There is some difference between living with such an one as you and with Georgiana. You perform your own part in life and burden no one. If you wish to take a few books from the library, you are welcome to do so. I remember you were drawn to them, and I have no need of them. Tomorrow, she continued, I set out for the continent. I shall take up my abode in a religious house, a convent, you would call it, 
There I shall be quiet and unmolested. I shall devote myself for a time to the examination of the Hindu Catholic dogmas and to a careful study of the workings of their system. If I find it to be, as I half suspect it is, the one best calculated to ensure the doing of all things decently and in order, I shall embrace the tenets of the faith and probably take the robes. I neither expressed surprise at this resolution, nor attempted to dissuade her from it. The vocation will fit you to a hair, I thought. Much good may it do you. When we parted, she said, Goodbye, Cousin Jane Eyre. I wish you well. You have some sense. I then returned, You are not without sense, Cousin Eliza, but what you have, I suppose, in another year will be walled up alive in a convent. However, it is not my business, and so it suits you. I don't much care. You are in the right, said she, and with these words we each went our separate way. Before quitting the manor, I did retrieve the two volumes of Bewick's British Birds, Gulliver's Travels and the Arabian Nights and placed them in my bag. Though I told myself I would use them in Adele's schooling, I knew in my secret heart that I longed to rescue from an eternity of silence and mildew the only items that had given me solace in my young life. As I shall not have occasion to refer either to Eliza or her sister again, I may as well mention here that Georgiana made an advantageous match with a wealthy, worn-out man of fashion, and that Eliza actually took the robes, and is at this day superior of the convent where she passed the period of her novitiate, and which she endowed with her fortune. How people feel when they are returning home from an absence, long or short, I did not know. I had never experienced the sensation. I had known what it was to come back to Gateshead when a child after a long walk, to be scolded for looking cold or gloomy, and later what it was to come back from services to Lowood, to long for a plenteous meal and a good fire, and to be unable to get either. Neither of these returnings was very pleasant or desirable. No magnet drew me to a given point, increasing in its strength of attraction the nearer I came. The return to Thornfield was yet to be tried. I was going back to Thornfield, but how long was I to stay there? Not long, of that I was sure. I had heard from Mrs. Fairfax in the interim of my absence. The party at the hall was dispersed. Thornfield Hall had returned to the Lake Estate. Mr. Rochester had left for London three weeks ago, but he was then expected to return in a fortnight. Mrs. Fairfax surmised that he was gone to make arrangements for his wedding, as he had talked of purchasing a new air carriage. She said the idea of his marrying Miss Ingram still seemed strange to her, but from what everybody said and from what she had herself seen, she could no longer doubt that the event would shortly take place. You would be strangely incredulous if you did doubt it, was my mental comment. I don't doubt it. The question followed, where was I to go? I dreamt of Miss Ingram all the night. In a vivid morning dream, I saw her closing the gates of Thornfield against me and pointing me out another road, and Mr. Rochester looked on with his arms folded, smiling sardonically as it seemed at both her and me. My journey seemed tedious, very tedious. Fifty miles one day by train, 
a night spent at an inn, 50 miles the next day by carriage. During the first 12 hours, I thought of Mrs. Reed in her last moments. I saw her disfigured and discoloured face and heard her strangely altered voice. I mused on the funeral day, the coffin, the black train of tenants and servants. Few was the number of relatives. The gaping cathedral, the silent temple, the solemn service, the dismissive way the pyre was lit. Then I thought of Eliza and Georgiana. I beheld one, the cynosure of the ballroom, the other, the inmate of a convent cell. And I dwelt on and analysed their separate peculiarities of person and character. The evening arrival at the great town scattered these thoughts. Night gave them quite another turn. Laid down on my traveller's bed, I left reminiscence for anticipation. I had not notified to Mrs Fairfax the exact day of my return, for I did not wish either car or carriage to meet me at Milcote. I proposed to walk the distance quietly by myself, and very quietly, after leaving my box in the ostler's care, did I slip away from the George Inn about six o'clock of a June evening and take the old road to Thornfield, a road which lay chiefly through fields and was now little frequented. It was not a bright or splendid summer evening, though fair and soft. The haymakers were at work all along the road, and the sky, though far from cloudless, was such as promised well for the future. Its blue, where blue was visible, was mild and settled, and its cloud strata high and thin. The west, too, was warm. No watery gleam chilled it. It seemed as if there was a fire lit an altar burning behind its screen of marbled vapour, and out of apertures shone a golden redness. I felt glad as the road shortened before me, so glad that I stopped once to ask myself what that joy meant, and to remind reason that it was not to my home I was going, or to a permanent resting place, or to a place where fond friends looked out for me and waited my arrival. Mrs. Fairfax will smile you a calm welcome, to be sure, said I, and little Adele will clap her hands and jump to see you. But you know very well you are thinking of another than they, and that he is not thinking of you. But what is so headstrong as youth? What so blind as inexperience? These affirmed that it was pleasure enough to have the privilege of again looking on Mr. Rochester, whether he looked on me or not. And they added, hasten, hasten, be with him while you may. But a few more days or weeks at most, and you are parted from him forever. And then I strangled a newborn agony and ran on. They're making hay, too, in Thornfield Meadows. Or rather, the labourers are just quitting their work and returning home with their rakes on their shoulders, machines lumbering behind like faithful dogs puffing clouds in the air. Now, at the hour I arrive, I can see in the golden hour the lake stretched before me and the manor in the place I know best, humming upon the pylons with wisps of smoke curling upwards. It dominates the scene, reaching upward with grace, the curving walls and gleaming windows. My heart contracts to see it, 
and I feel that I wish to run to the doors that will for a short time more welcome me in. I have but a field or two to traverse, and then I shall cross the road and reach the gates. How full the hedges are of roses, but I have no time to gather any. I want to be at the house. I passed a tall briar shooting leafy and flowery branches across the path. I see the narrow stile with stone steps, and I see Mr. Rochester sitting there, a book and a pencil in his hand. He is writing. Well, he is not a ghost, yet every nerve I have is unstrung. For a moment I am beyond my own mastery. What does it mean? I did not think I should tremble in this way when I saw him, or lose my voice or the power of motion in his presence. I will go back as soon as I can stir. I need not make an absolute fool of myself. I know another way to the house. It does not signify if I knew twenty ways, for he has seen me. Hello, he cries, and he puts up his book and his pencil. There you are. Come on, if you please. I suppose I do come on, though in what fashion I know not, being scarcely cognizant of my movements, and solicitous only to appear calm, and above all to control the working muscles of my face, which I feel rebel insolently against my will, and struggle to express what I resolve to conceal. But I have a veil, it is down. I may make shift yet to behave with decent composure. And is this Jane Eyre? Are you coming from Milcott and on foot? Yes, just one of your tricks not to send for a carriage and come clattering over street and road like a common mortal, but to steal into the vicinage of your home along with twilight, just as if you were a dream or a shade. What the deuce have you done with yourself this last month? I have been with my aunt, sir, who is dead. A true Janian reply. Good angels be my guard. She comes from the other world, from the abode of people who are dead, and tells me so when she meets me alone here in the gloaming. If I dared, I'd touch you to see if you are substance or shadow, you elf. But I'd as soon offer to take hold of a blue ignis fatuous light in a marsh. Truant, truant, he added, when he had paused an instant. Absent from me a whole month and forgetting me quite, I'll be sworn. I knew there would be pleasure in meeting my master again, even though broken by the fear that he was so soon to cease to be my master, and by the knowledge that I was nothing to him. But there was ever in Mr. Rochester, so at least I thought, such a wealth of the power of communicating happiness, that to taste but of the crumbs he scattered to stray and stranger birds like me was to feast genially. His last words were balm. They seemed to imply that it imported something to him whether I forgot him or not. And he had spoken of Thornfield as my home. Would that it were my home. He did not leave the stile, and I hardly liked to ask to go by. I inquired soon if he had not been to London. Yes, I suppose you found that out by second sight. Mrs. Fairfax told me in a letter. And did she inform you what I went to do? Oh, yes, sir, everybody knew your errand. 
You must see the air carriage, Jane, and tell me if you don't think it will suit Mrs. Rochester exactly, and whether she won't look like Queen Boadicea leaning back against those purple cushions. I wish, Jane, I were a trifle better adapted to match with her externally. Tell me now, fairy as you are, can't you give me a charm or something of that sort to make me a handsome man? It would be past the power of magic, sir. And in thought I added, a loving eye is all the charm needed. To such you are handsome enough, or rather your sternness has a power beyond beauty. Mr. Rochester had sometimes read my unspoken thoughts with an acumen to me incomprehensible. In the present instance, he took no notice of my abrupt vocal response, but he smiled at me with a certain smile he had of his own, and which he used but on rare occasions. He seemed to think it too good for common purposes. It was the real sunshine of feeling. He shed it over me now. Pass, Janet, said he, making room for me to cross the stile. Go up home and stay your weary little wandering feet at a friend's threshold. All I had now to do was to obey him in silence. No need for me to colloquise further. I got over the stile without a word and meant to leave him calmly. An impulse held me fast. A force turned me round. I said, or something in me said for me and in spite of me, Thank you, Mr. Rochester, for your great kindness. I am strangely glad to get back again to you. And wherever you are is my home, my only home. I walked on so fast that even he could hardly have overtaken me had he tried. Little Adele was half wild with delight when she saw me. Mrs. Fairfax received me with her usual plain friendliness. Leah smiled, and even the autotendant Sophie bidding me bonsoir felt cheerful. This was very pleasant. There is no happiness like that of being loved by your fellow creatures and feeling that your presence is an addition to their comfort. I that evening shut both my eyes resolutely against the future. I stopped my ears against the voice that kept warning me of near separation and coming grief. When tea was over and Mrs. Fairfax had taken her knitting, and I had assumed a low seat near her, and Adele kneeling on the carpet had nestled close up to me, and a sense of mutual affection seemed to surround us with a ring of golden peace. I uttered a silent prayer that we might not be parted far or soon. But when, as we thus sat, Mr. Rochester entered unannounced, and looking at us seemed to take pleasure in the spectacle of a group so amicable, when he said he supposed the old lady was all right now that she had got her adopted daughter back again, and added that he saw Adele was prête à croquer sa petite maman anglaise. I half ventured to hope that he would, even after his marriage, keep us together somewhere under the shelter of his protection, and not quite exiled from the sunshine of his presence. A fortnight of dubious calm succeeded my return to Thornfield Hall. Nothing was said of the master's marriage, and I saw no preparation going on for such an event. Almost every day I asked Mrs. Fairfax if she had yet heard anything decided. Her answer was always in the negative. Once she said she had actually put the question to Mr. Rochester as to when he was going to bring his bride home, 
But he answered her only by a joke and one of his queer looks, and she could not tell what to make of him. One thing specially surprised me, and that was there were no journeyings backward and forward, no visits to Ingram Park. To be sure, it was twenty miles off on the borders of another county, but what was that distance to an ardent lover? To so practised and indefatigable a horseman as Mr. Rochester, it would be but a morning's ride. I began to cherish hopes I had no right to conceive, that the match was broken off, that rumour had been mistaken, that one or both parties had changed their minds. I used to look at my master's face to see if it was sad or fierce, but I could not remember the time when it had been so uniformly clear of clouds or evil feelings. If in the moments I and my pupil spent with him I lacked spirits and sank into inevitable dejection, he became even gay. Never had he called me more frequently to his presence, never been kinder to me when there, and alas, never had I loved him so well. Thank you for listening to this chapter of Public Works Steampunk Presents Jane Eyre. This book is copyright 2021 by R.A. Harding. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. The music box intro and outro was recorded by Nicholas Drewski. If you would like to read the author's notes on the chapter or order the book, please go to publicworksteampunk.com. And while you're there, join the mailing list to get a -a one-of-a-kind infographic about the book and more. Farewell for the present.